as I talk to you today, we're planting thousands of agaves. And these kids are like, they have smiles all the way across their face. And they're learning about the climate. They're learning about organics and they are going to produce a crop, which is amazing. Welcome to Cambridge Forum, uh, coming to you live via Zoom. I'm Mary Stack, the Director of Cambridge Forum, and today we're going to take a look at farming for the future, with a special emphasis on smart and sustainable ways of growing our food. And welcome again to Ronnie Cummings, who is an organic farming guru and member of the Regeneration International Movement. He's also Director of the Organic Consumers Association, and runs a farming school in Mexico where he teaches biodynamics. Ronnie recently wrote a book called Grassroots Rising. So Ronnie, in a nutshell, you sent me a wonderful synopsis of the seven characteristics of your practice, and you seem to have created an entirely sustainable system down there with uh, experience, hard work, and innovation. So perhaps you could tell us a bit about uh, what that means, biodynamic farming where you are down there? Well, I can uh, talk a little bit about what we're doing uh, uh, in Mexico. I, I manage two farms. One of them's in uh, northeast Minnesota, where the, the weather's pretty severe up there, and where we're trying to use uh, uh, techniques, permaculture techniques for the far north to, to grow a lot of food during our short growing season. But we also uh, have pioneered uh, what's called a deep winter greenhouse uh, there. I think there's only four of them in Minnesota. But there's a way to, to uh, uh, use solar energy, and you have like five-foot deep cellar, sort of a rock, rock uh, cellar in your greenhouse. And we're growing vegetables when it's 30 below zero. Uh, so uh, what we've got to do, though, is we've got to get the cost of those uh, deep grow uh, uh, really nice uh, organic vegetables uh, throughout, the, throughout the year, even in uh, northern Minnesota with a climate like Siberia. But the other half of the year, besides my activism and writing and so on, uh, I manage a farm in the high desert of uh, north central Mexico. And our challenge here is, uh, it's not that it gets too cold in the winter. Our challenge here is that it, uh, it only rains four months a year. It's raining right now, thank goodness, but we've been waiting for almost eight months uh, for the rains to start. So uh, we run a farm school here. We've got 75 acres and we teach young farmers uh, and we teach small farmers, uh, you know, organic permaculture techniques on a very diversified farm with all kinds of livestock, with all kinds of fruits and vegetables. But the big challenge, uh, we do not have a well. Uh, and the reason we don't have a well is because 86% of Mexican farmers uh, don't have a well and they're not gonna get a well. They depend on seasonal rain and uh, catching the rain. There's 4 million uh, family farms left in Mexico, quite a bit more than there are in the US, but no one, literally, the government says over 90% run a deficit. No one can make a living from their farming. That's the reason why you see so many 
uh, Mexican and Central American people trying to immigrate to the United States. They're, they're trying to feed their families. So we're dealing with a situation where the average rural household income is $400 a month or $5,000 a year. So the, it's about one-tenth of the average household income in the United States. So we're dealing with people who uh, are living in poverty for the most part, rural people, but we're also dealing with people who have access, they have more access to land uh, in Mexico because of the Mexican Revolution. The majority of land in this country, over uh, uh, 200 million acres of farmland is in the hands of these rural uh, communities, or they're kind of like co-ops, they call them mm -hmm. ejidos, and they own most of the land in common. Uh, they have their private holdings of two, two to four acres, uh, but a community would uh, at times have, uh, you know, a couple of thousand acres owned communally together. But the problem with most of the land uh, in Mexico, 60% of it uh, is very similar to what we have around here. It, if you have semi-arid, arid land, uh, which is what 40% of the world's farmland is, it's very difficult to grow crops, especially if you don't have irrigation. Uh, very difficult. And it's becoming nearly impossible to grow the traditional corn and beans and squash uh, and other staple crops because of the weather. So uh, we have embarked on a very exciting program here of trying to adapt to climate change, trying to adapt to erratic weather, trying to restore lands. Uh, you can hear the lightning there in the background, thank goodness. And um, a couple of farmers figured out something uh, in desperation that literally had never been figured out in thousands of years, which is that a couple uh, or one of the primary desert plants uh, that we have that we're blessed with here in, in semi-arid, arid land is agave. And there's 140 varieties of agave. And they grow basically on 20% of the world's landscapes right now. They grow in these areas that are very difficult to farm. Uh, they grow where the poorest of the poor live, in Mexico, Central America, Southwestern, I mean, it's the same uh, climate in Southwestern US, but Southern Africa, uh, has uh, this terrain, uh, India, large parts of China, uh, Australia, Asia. So it's a huge swath of the world's uh, lands. And our goal is to produce crops, uh, native crops that will sequester the maximum amount of carbon and restore the environment while, while alleviating poverty. And so the amazing discovery we made a year ago, because these farmers came to one of our workshops on our farm about organic compost and Bocasia type biointensive farming. Uh, they said, uh, have you ever heard of people chopping off the leaves or the pancas of these giant agave plants and fermenting them? Because the problem with uh, agave leaves, the pancas, up until, up until now, they have compounds in them that are indigestible for animals. They have a lot of biomass. I mean, we're producing 60 tons of biomass 
uh, on two and a half acres every year on a continuous basis for these crops. But what good are they if you can't use most of the plant? So they figured that out. It's like with humans, fermenting certain foods is really good for our health. And so what, what we have started doing, uh, and they also invented a machine to chop these up efficiently. And we, we are using these five gallon buckets or 20 liter buckets to put the chopped up agave in. Uh, you ferment it for 30 days and the saponins and the lectins in there before transform into carbohydrates and sugar. And so what you end up with is a, looks like golden coleslaw. And uh, first the animals kind of sniff at it. What the hell is this? And, uh, but then they start liking it. And it turns out, we've sent it to the lab, it turns out to be incredibly nutritious uh, once it's fermented. Uh, and then, well, the protein level, and it's a quarter of the price of alfalfa or hay. Alfalfa is too water intensive for this area and for other semi-arid, arid areas of the world, but it's still grown on a massive scale. It uses 26 times the amount of water that these native desert plants use. Uh, and you don't have the water anyway uh, if you don't have a well. So anyway, uh, if you look at a desert landscape, uh, uh, the 20% of the world that already has agaves, and it could be 40% of the world, if we spread this a little, they also have trees. You look at them, wow, they're not very impressive, like mesquite trees in West Texas or the Southwest. They're considered a nuisance by most uh, farmers uh, and ranchers until recently. But these, these trees are acacia trees in Africa, uh, Lucania, I think you pronounce it in, in Australia. Uh, these are nitrogen fixing trees that live in degraded semi-arid, arid environments. And they typically have bean pods on them. And so the mesquite bean pods, farmers have known this uh, for a long time and indigenous people have known this, those pods are edible for animals and humans a certain time of the year. And they have high protein. So what we discovered uh, working with these farmers down here is if you, if you ferment the uh, mesquite pods with the chopped up agave, uh, you end up with something far better than alfalfa at a fraction of the cost. Wow. And animals, even though they can thrive from grazing and just eating the agave, uh, fermented agave, during the dry season, when there's not much, you know, the grass is dead out there, if you want your breeding stock, the mamas uh, and the papas to be healthy, uh, you, they need that higher protein. If you can't afford alfalfa, you give them this mix. Uh, or if you're milking the goats, you know, or if you're milking the cows. Uh, and so this is unbelievable. Uh, we've discovered in our county here, if we can, uh, if we can plant uh, this agave mesquite into this landscape uh, as, at the scale possible, two to 3,000 plants per hectare or 1,000 plants per acre, we can sequester all the carbon emissions in the whole county with 30,000 acres uh, under deployment. That's about 10% of the land 
in this county or municipality is enough with these high carbon, uh, high biomass producing continuous systems to solve the climate problem. And, and this county happens to be very famous in Mexico, San Miguel de Allende. It's considered the cradle of liberty. It's a world heritage site. It's 480 years old, the city. So the whole country looks at this county. And even though there's 2,400 counties in Mexico, 60% uh, of the terrain is like this. And so this could make farming, subsistence farming, and livestock management uh, start to make money. All this entire system we're certifying organic so that we will have lamb uh, in the marketplace at a premium price. So we're excited. We've sat down with the national government uh, reforestation program. We're working with the county. We're working with the state people. Uh, and the poverty is intense and it's growing. And the drug lords, I uh, have made much of the country a uh, pretty scary place. Uh, but we still have people on the land. We still have people who want to farm. We still have these idealistic young people who are, as I talk to you today, we're planting thousands. We're transplanting thousands of agaves. Uh, and these kids are like, you know, they're out of school uh, because of the pandemic. You know, they're desperate for work. but they have smiles all the way across their face. And they're learning about the climate. They're learning about organics. They're learning about the value of their traditions. And they are going to produce a crop, which is amazing. So uh, I'm very enthusiastic about this. That's why, that's what's held me uh, here for the last uh, three months and nine months, the last 12 months. But I'm coming back to the U.S., uh, actually tomorrow and we're going to drive but i am very anxious to talk with some of the navajo sheep herders that i've started to have conversations with i'm very anxious to talk to the people in the southwest the united states who have the same terrain uh, because the water situation is getting worse and worse that they're facing as well and i really believe that we are going to see young people like we did in the 60s, I think we're going to see young people start moving back to the land and farming regeneratively. I think we're going to, we're going to see native traditions and rural traditions be uh, brought up to the 21st century with all the innovations that permaculture and organic and, you know, regenerative farmers are made. So basically, I'm fired up. And I think we're, it's an uphill battle here, but Mother Nature had the solution right in front of our eyes. We just didn't know what to look for, and now uh, we're going full blast. <laughs> Very inspirational, Ronnie. I mean, really inspirational, and, and really hopeful that this might be the panacea for the, the problem that we're all going to encounter shortly with the climate crisis. So, are you kind and cooperative with the habitat for the wildlife around you? Or how do you go along with that? Do you plant one for you and one for you and one for them? And yeah, one of the things is uh, our farm and our, our research farm in Mexico is certified organic, but we have higher aspirations. So we're in the process of being certified biodynamic. 
And one of the things I love about biodynamic organic, it's the highest form of certification, for example, under the USDA organic, they require you to leave at least 10% of your farm wild, you know? And so we have, it's about 14% of our farm. It's called the Monte or the mountain, you know, in, uh, in Spanish. But that area we leave, uh, we leave alone. And occasionally the, you know, we can have the goats and sheep just make a pass through there, but not, not very much. Uh, and that, you just really notice, we've got such beautiful birds, you know, in our area that people come out just for bird watching. Uh, and it also helps, you know, the bees and the other animals uh, uh, or the other insects, beneficial insects uh, thrive. So I think we need, to, we need to have that wildness as part of our life wherever we can. And I think in cities, uh, in the Victory Gardens in the United States, right before I was born in 1945, we were growing 42% of the nation's vegetables in our cities. And Great Britain at the time was growing 28% of theirs. So there's a billion people in the world out of seven and a half billion who live in urban areas who are growing at least a little bit of their food. Maybe they have a few chickens, they have a garden, and our goal should be to get the urban areas as self-sufficient as we can. It's not just enough to transform 65 million acres of lawn in America uh, to gardens. We need to plant you know, millions and millions of trees in our urban areas as well. And while we're doing it, why don't we plant trees that the birds like, you know, that or that humans, you know, can eat fruit trees or nut trees. I know in the upper Midwest, there's a huge renaissance now of hazelnuts and of elderberries. These are the most incredible perennial crops that you can grow in combination with annual crops, you know, that will uh, transform the environment, sequester the carbon, and produce extremely valuable, you know, instead of finishing pigs, fattening them up on corn, why aren't we fattening them up on hazelnuts? You know, where then the farmer can get like an Italian farmer, you can get three or four times as much for the meat. Why is that? Because it's better, it tastes better. And the pigs are happy, you know, <laughs> animals, all of our animals are free range. It's just like, I think it's extremely important that we get the animals back on the land, that we have a relationship with the animals. These are precious beings. I mean, pick up a little goat, pick up a little sheep. You know, these things are incredible. Pick up a chicken, you know, you look in their eyes, they are smart beings. We are sacrificing them for our survival, you know, but we should be reverent about that. And remember, we need to remember uh, when we're dead, the little animals are going to eat us, you know. <laughs> so let's not hold it against the uh, soil microorganisms that they're going to turn our corpses, if we give them a chance, uh, into something very useful. So, You've recently wrote a book called Grassroots Rising. And you said you wrote it because nobody else was doing it. So can you tell us a bit about why you wrote it and why you felt it was the time to call to action? Well, 
there's lots of books out there about the climate crisis, but almost all of them talk almost exclusively in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by converting to alternative energy and energy conservation. And of course, those are very important. On the other hand, there's lots of books out there about regenerative agriculture. Unfortunately, typically those focus on individual farms and ranches and don't talk much about the big picture. So I wanted to write a book that was a roadmap for the United States about how we go from where we are now, which has uh, created a climate emergency and a public health emergency, environmental emergency, uh, an impoverishment of rural America, you know, sharp decrease in biodiversity. Uh, how do we get from where we are now, which I call a degenerative society, to a regenerative state? Uh, and if we really uh, want to have high goals, which we need to have for the rest of the world to be inspired, uh, I think we should adopt the Green New Deal as supported by 100 or so members of Congress. And basically, we're saying that we can reach zero net emissions in 10 years if we will combine the good trends we already have moving to alternative energy and energy conservation with a massive drawdown of carbon from the atmosphere and putting it back where it used to be in our trees, in our plants, in our soil, in our grasslands. Uh, and what I lay out in the final chapter of the book is how we take this 1.9 million acres of, um, excuse me, 1.9 billion acres of farmland in the United States, pasture land, crop land, forests as well, how we can go from sequestering 10% or 11% of the emissions we're putting up now uh, into sequestering uh, half of it. Uh, and if we do this, if we increase uh, the levels of photosynthesis and regenerative land management of fourfold or so over the next 10 years, while we reduce emissions by 50%, we can reach a zero net emissions by 2030. That means that what we'll still be putting up in terms of emissions will be drawing down. Uh, and of course, scientists tell us that it's not enough to just reach zero net emissions. Beyond the year 2030, we need to start drawing down more carbon uh, and greenhouse gases than we're actually putting up there if we want to gradually restabilize the climate over time. So the, the good news is that the practices that we need in order to move to alternative energy and to move to regenerative uh, food farming and land use practices, they already exist. We don't need to uh, reinvent the wheel. We already have in every state, in every county in the United States, examples of best practices in terms of regenerative agriculture. Uh, regenerative agriculture is simply the next stage of organic where we focus on soil health and focus on carbon sequestration, uh, as well as not using the chemicals and fertilizers. The, how are we going to make these regenerative organic practices the norm? How are we gonna make regenerative forestry and ecosystem restoration practices the norm? We already know how to reforest, you know, in a way that's species appropriate, in a way that works. We already know how to restore wetlands and grasslands. We know how to restore marine ecosystems. The problem is that 
these are the alternative. These are the niche practices now, not the norm. So four things are gonna be required, and I think we already see these developing. One of them is consumer and voter awareness. If people don't understand that there's hope that we can turn things around and make, not only fix the climate, but fix our public health catastrophe, fix the, the uh, economic situation in rural areas, bring urban and rural people together, restore biodiversity and habitat. Uh, once you get people to see that we can do it, uh, the next stage is to call attention to the best practices because we know what they are, but the general public uh, tends to be depressed, you know, and not hopeful that we can do this. So we need to take these best practices, shine the spotlight on them, magnify them, get everyone aware of this. But the third point, which is key, we got to have, we got to change public policy. We got to change political power. Right now, we, we do have subsidies for food farming and land use. The problem is they're subsidizing degenerative practices. We're paying farmers and ranchers to farm and ranch the wrong way. You know, we're subsidizing the production of food that is so low in nutrients that 40% of Americans have chronic diseases, and many of them, when they come into contact with this coronavirus, die. These pre-existing conditions we hear so much about uh, that cause people to have to go to the hospital and that cause them to have to go into ventilators where most of them die. These pre-existing conditions, these aren't acts of God. You know, these are functions of your diet, your environment, the stress in your life, and we can have a healthier population. We didn't used to have 40% of our population with chronic diseases like we did now. When my grandparents uh, operated a family organic farm in East Texas in the 50s and 60s, a lot of these chronic diseases, no one had even heard of these before. So we must change policy. It's gonna cost hundreds of billions of dollars over the next 10 years to change our degenerative food farming and land use system into one that is regenerative. But look at what, you know, we're spending trillions now, you know, trying to make up for the degenerative practices that have led us to this point. Uh, we can afford to do it and we will do it. The fourth factor, which is extremely important, uh, we can't count on the government for $840 billion a year as called for in the Green New Deal plan. We need our private money and our public money working together. And there's plenty of money. I mean, Americans in our savings plans, in our retirement plans, we have $25 trillion, you know, right now. We have trillions of dollars in the stock market invested in things like fossil fuels and industrial agriculture, industrial timber uh, extraction, and so on. There's plenty of money to do it if we have the political will. So I'll just conclude by saying, that the solution to our catastrophe, our catastrophic times that we're facing, and believe me, this pandemic is just a, a small dress rehearsal for climate catastrophe, but the solutions are at hand. They're as close as the knives and forks in our hand. We've got to vote for regenerative food and farming and land use every time we pull out our wallet, every time we go to the store, every time we think about what we're going to eat. 
And so we're all in this together. We can all get out of this together. I hope people will take a look at my book, Grassroots Rising, Call to Action on Climate, Farming, Food, and a Green New Deal. If you're interested in a specific roadmap on what we can here do in the United States with our 1.9 billion acres of pasture land and range land and forest land, urban land, uh, parklands. A real call to action on many fronts. Thank you for listening to Cambridge Forum today with my guest, Ronnie Cummings, author of Grassroots Rising. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter. It is also sponsored by the Lowell Institute, the Massachusetts Cultural Council, Harvard Bookstore, and First Parish Church in Cambridge. Thanks to all of you for joining us today online. Thank you.